Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Americans gathered around their televisions and mobile devices last night to hear Democrats talk about, among other things, income inequality and money in politics. So, of course, the debate was held inside a giant Las Vegas casino owned by a rich guy who gave millions to conservative interests. Yes, indeed, this presidential race is strange. And today in the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we'll talk about the impact of what we heard last night. We'll also preview Bill Clinton coming into Connecticut to raise money for his wife's campaign. And later we'll talk about a new poll that's no good for Governor Malloy. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. What did you think of last night's debate? Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us as always in studio is Colin McEnroe. He is the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Joining us from Quinnipiac University is Kalila Brown-Dean. She's Associate Professor of Political Science there. Kalila, always good to see you as well. Thanks, John. And Bill Curry is a columnist at Salon.com and our Democratic political analyst. Hey there, Bill. Morning, sir. Nice to be here. What, what I'd like to do is just sort of go around the table. We're going to hear a little bit from uh, the debate last night in some sound bites, and I'm sure you've heard some of it. Maybe you stayed up last night. Maybe you were watching a baseball game. But for, for those who maybe didn't get a chance to absorb this call, what are the big takeaways of, for you from this Democratic debate? Well, um, I wrote in the salon that for me, Bernie Sanders had won the night, but it really is sort of possible to see this two different ways. And, and to sort of say two different people and maybe the Democratic Party itself had good nights in the sense that um, the worst thing that could have happened would be for a lot of people watching this debate to be thinking, oh, Joe Biden or somebody like that really needs to get in because there's really nobody high functioning enough or palatable enough uh, to run for president. And and so I I think maybe the biggest takeaway is I don't think people had that reaction or would likely to be happy to be having that reaction to what they saw there last night. Hillary Clinton basically was doing what she needed to do, which is to seem high functioning, likable, able to answer questions, having fun, that kind of thing. Bernie Sanders, meanwhile, this was really maybe his first chance to talk talk for a long time to a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people who've already on a boutique basis become Bernie Sanders followers. But, you know, this really kind of was raising the curtain on him for, you know, a much longer stretch of time, two and a half hours of listening to Bernie Sanders. And I, I mean, I, I just in terms of political courage and talking about real things and not focus grouping his answers, but just saying exactly what he meant about most things, not everything, about but about most things. Uh, I think he got a chance to show a lot more people people why he does have this group of very, very dedicated followers. As a matter of fact, let's listen to a little bit of Bernie Sanders really making this case early on in this debate. The middle class of this country for the last 40 years has been disappearing. Millions of Americans are working longer hours for low wages, and yet almost all of the new income and wealth being created is going to the top 1%. And what we heard, Kalila, is Bernie Sanders saying something on that theme over and over and over again because he has a few very key themes that he is trying to hit. Unlike many people who are trying to make a big national debut in front of people and uh, trying to differentiate themselves, he didn't talk about himself, Bernie Sanders, at all. His opening statement was what we just heard, and that's what he carried through 
all night long. And I think that's what drew viewers in, that from the start, he hit issues of mass incarceration, climate change, the income gap, the need to really think seriously about these problems. He didn't need to to have a story about humble upbringing or trying to personalize himself in that way. And I think that immediately set him apart from the other candidates. But I also think it was a good night for Martin O'Malley. I think that some people said, well, wait, who is this guy? And maybe I don't agree with everything. Maybe his affect isn't the same as other candidates. But this was his sort of Ben Carson moment with the debate last night. Uh, Bill, how about you? I mean, obviously, you've been writing a lot about this in Salon. And the opening that I wrote was was ripped from your uh, most recent column where you you kind of made fun of the Democrats for deciding that we were going to talk about income inequality and all these other issues that Bernie Sanders wants to talk about inside a giant Las Vegas casino. What was your takeaway from last night? Um, Well, first of all, I I thought it was Hillary's night, not by a lot, uh, but – I thought that she did a number of things that uh, you know that she needed to do. All this stuff about there, there, there are two tropes in all the coverage: anger and authenticity. And the the public's <laughs> anger and the people and the candidates need to be more authentic, and they need to express the anger. And in terms of authenticity, Hillary's spent the whole year trying to be authentically someone else. Uh, you know, in a van uh, at Chipotle, uh, uh, dancing with Ellen. She's an earnest, passionate policy wonk. And this was the first time she's put herself in a venue in which she could be herself and prosper. And so last night, she, you saw – what you saw was exactly who she is and, and, and there's a lot to like about it. I also thought it was a close uh, 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 contest uh, for just the reasons that, that, that have been talked about. Uh, Bernie Sanders has the better message because it's the truer message. I thought about the Democratic Party watching it and the fact that the things Hillary does well are the things the Democratic establishment does well. Social programs for families and children and women, cultural issues, whether it's guns, race, affirmative action. These are the things – for all its warts and blemishes, the Democratic Party has been pretty good. Where it sucks is on pay-to-play politics, on the power of corporations, on the shrinking of the middle class, on what it takes to restructure this economy so that it works for people. And the reason that Bernie Sanders may come out of this a little bit ahead in the polls is that Hillary spoke with great conviction about those things where she's strong and the party's strong. And he spoke with great conviction about the things where the party is weak and they happen to be the things that matter most right now. They're the things that most need fixing. But one of the things that Hillary Clinton tried to do and in many ways the questions that were asked by the CNN moderators helped her into this. Here she is talking Absolutely. about how she would – how she would uh, – what she would call herself. There was a whole conversation about uh, Bernie Sanders being a democratic socialist. And, and here's Hillary Clinton describing whether or not she's a progressive. I'm a progressive, but I'm a progressive who likes to get things done. And I know how to find common ground, and I know how to stand my ground, and I have proved that in every position that I've had, even dealing with Republicans who never had a good word to say about me, honestly. And so, Colin, there's Hillary Clinton essentially saying, yeah, I'm progressive on a lot of the same things Bernie Sanders is, but I can actually, you know, do stuff. Well, okay, so that's that's an argument that was also alluded to near nearer the end by, by Jim Webb, who 
who said at one point Bernie Sanders talked about uh, wanting a political revolution and he, he said, I think unwisely and dismissively, the revolution's not coming. But then he said something that is true. He said, I, I just don't know how any of these ideas get through Congress. So everything that we love about Bernie Sanders, we, we know that what we heard from Barack Obama in his first run in 2008, you know, by the time he was dealing with a recalcitrant Congress, there were so many things that he might have imagined that he could do that he just couldn't do. And I don't know how fair it is, at, particularly at this point in the, in the debates, to say that about Bernie Sanders, that A, you know, it's very difficult to imagine him winning a general election, but B, if you could imagine that, it's very difficult to imagine what it would be like with him uh, talking about things like, you know, entirely free public higher education, which is a great idea. Boy, good luck with that in Congress. Good luck with a lot of your ideas in Congress. Um, I, you know, in some ways, it would be better, I think, to thrash out these ideas first and then talk about their practicality uh, as measures that you could get through Congress later. But it's, it's got to be talked about at some point. Well, one thing, actually, that, that Congress might be able to grapple with is, is Bernie Sanders' stance on guns, which is interesting. And it, it I think, allowed us, Kalilo, one of the first real differentiators here between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders on, on, a, on a key issue. Here's uh, Sanders talking about guns. Do you want to shield gun companies from lawsuits of course or not. not? This was a large and complicated bill. There were provisions in it that I think made sense. For example, do I think that a gun shop in the state of Vermont that sells legally a gun to somebody and that somebody goes out and does something crazy, that that gun shop owner should be held responsible? I don't. So that's Bernie Sanders first answering a question from Anderson Cooper, and then the other uh, candidates, Kalilo, sort of piled on because Bernie Sanders comes from a state, Vermont, that he said over and over again doesn't have the same views about guns that many of the other urban states that the other folks represent uh, have. It is something that an awful lot of Bernie Sanders supporters may indeed cringe at uh, in some urban areas. What did you think about his response to the gun question? So I think it highlights the importance of federalism, this idea that states can make decisions for themselves. But here's where I think Bernie Sanders is wrong. So if we're going to defend gun culture in Vermont because people like to hunt or there's sort of a different approach, it's hard then to attack gun culture, if you will, in a Maryland where people say, well, I need these guns to protect myself. So if we're going to say it's about culture, then we need to have that even approach. The timing of it is key given a recent court decision about two officers who were shot in Milwaukee. And even though the person who purchased the gun did so legally, he then passed it on to a teenager who shot those two officers. So there has to be accountability. There has to be a recognition. Yes, you may use these guns because you like to hunt or that's the culture of Vermont. But there is a bigger national problem that as a president, you have to put your regional views aside and think about what's best for the country. It, it, it exposed a weakness of his, not just on the issue, but in general. And, and that is that uh, Bernie's tendency is to assert the truth of his position as he understands it and not to provide enough explanation. Uh, you don't just say, yeah, I'm a democratic socialist. You say this is about small business versus big business. This is about whether this is an opportunity economy. It was a tough thing for him to be caught on the hardest issue, uh, which is uh, uh, suing the gun companies uh, because most people in the Democratic Party understand that what the NRA and what the gun lobby has become, it used to be sportsmen. When I started out, you were dealing with sportsmen. They don't have as many sportsmen. Hunting is on the wane. What, what, they, what that organization represents now are gun manufacturers and paranoid, delusional, apocalypse fantasists. And, uh, and, and, and so he's you – know, it's not about Vermont hunters. It's not about 
uh, be, be, bring people together. The, the other thing is that it's hard to put Bernie in a situation where he's arguing that you need to build a consensus. And on that point, even though he should have made it more clearly, he was correct. In fact, this is one of those areas where we're, where we're going to have to build a delicate consensus. Most of the things he ticked off, straw men, auctions, etc., that is what the, uh, any final bill is likely to look at. He should have been a little better at making that point and uh, cutting his losses on the larger issue. Also, like Hillary, every so often it makes sense to be able to simply say I was wrong. Well, and, and so uh, Hillary Clinton picked up on this. Here she is uh, answering Bernie Sanders' views on guns, especially his votes on the Brady Bill. Senator Sanders did vote five times against the Brady Bill. Since it was passed, more than two million prohibited purchases have been prevented. He also did vote, as he said, for this immunity provision. I voted against it. I was in the Senate at the same time. It wasn't that complicated to me. It was pretty straightforward to me. All right. So, um, uh, you know, to Bill's point, uh, first of all, I thought Sanders was just terrible on the gun stuff, partly because it just doesn't resonate with or doesn't even conform to the persona that he has most Mm -hmm. of the time. You know, I mean, basically, I kept wondering, who does he remind me of? And I I realized it was Alan Arkin as the kind of coke-snorting, porn-watching, but otherwise completely lovable, honest grandfather uh, in uh, Little Miss Sunshine, you know? The guy who could, the only guy in the movie who could really talk about what's going on in the family. (laughs) And that's kind of who Bernie Sanders is. He's the only guy who can really talk about what's going on. So when he when he threads needles, you know, that's that doesn't sound good. Um, and 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 Bill's also right that he's got to explain certain things better, like saying you're a democratic socialist and then go, you know, like Denmark. Yeah. Well, that's not good. Yeah, we've all been there. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, but the, the truth is, OK, so in Denmark, the reality in Denmark is you know, they have a different vocabulary from what we have here. Not only do they speak a different language, but when they use the Danish word welfare state, they use it positively. A welfare state's a good thing. It's a state that actually takes care of its people. It exists to take care of its people. And one of the things that Bernie Sanders is trying to do, and it, it happened multiple times through that debate, is get Americans to think in a different vocabulary, not all the way to the extent of welfare state good, but a, a lot of things that Americans aren't comfortable talking about in ways that they aren't comfortable talking about. He's really inviting them to think differently. Can he do that? He's can he accomplish? How? Yeah. If, I, I, can he accomplish? Can he accomplish? That kind of even linguistic transformation, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, not, not yet, not based on what he did last night. But I think it's also a challenge when you hear how Sanders speaks about voters last night, that, you know, we have this low voter turnout and people need to commit to the process and people need to participate. So you also have to address the institutional barriers to that. So he has this transformative vision of American democracy without directly attacking how closing DMV centers in places like Alabama makes it harder for someone to get a voter ID. So it has to be a combination of how do we bring voters up? How do we educate and engage voters? But how do we also attack the system and the structure that limits that? Two things. I, first of all, I think that, that is right on the money. And uh, I, uh, when, he, when, he, when he talked about having everyone come to the, to the table in this democracy and stand up for their interests and that it won't happen without that, uh, he could do a lot of things with that right now. He's building a movement. Barack Obama built the largest grassroots electoral political movement in the nation's history in 2008. And as soon as he won, he took it private. And we haven't seen it since. Bernie ought to be making clear that he's trying to build a movement to last, not just for his own campaign. And the second thing, if I just say it quickly, and that is that, uh, that, that, that all of these points show that he's not ready to debate. Hillary came ready to debate Bernie. She came prepared. She came ready to engage him. 
I, I thought last night that Bernie has the wrong model for this campaign and that he's planning on just showing us what he believes and trusting us to make the right choice, letting the facts speak for themselves. He's got to illuminate the differences between himself and Clinton, not just so that he can win, but so that we can have the kind of debate that illuminates those differences and allows us to move forward. It also helps when the CNN debate format is anytime you mention someone's name, that person then gets another couple minutes to talk. And so it's very easy to just then debate one person. Billy's calling from Windsor. Hey, Billy, go ahead. You're on where we live. Hey, Billy, are you there? Oh, we'll try to get Billy back on the line. Hey, tell you what, we're going to take a break. We'll get Billy up there. I've got another few phone calls who want to uh, talk to us. We're going to uh, debate more about the debate last night. We're also going to talk about some other issues in the news this week. It's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Thanks for joining us here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're taking a close look at last night's Democratic debate. We're going to take some of your phone calls in a moment. We're joined today by Bill Curry, columnist at Salon.com, Kalila Brown-Dean, associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University, and our very own Colin McEnroe, who hosts the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. What is on your show this afternoon, Colin? Uh, We are, in fact, um, going to share with you a live forum that I did about a week ago at Washington School about whether or not college is worth it. College costs a lot of money these days. Some would say the product itself is declining. The results that you get from that product are in some ways declining. So we'll talk to people who uh, are both educators and we have also some people who didn't go to college or dropped out and have had fulfilling and successful careers. Although you may be very surprised about what they say about that. Huh, interesting. So that's one o'clock this afternoon on the Colin McEnroe Show. Actually, just that leads me into something I wanted to ask all of you about last night's debate before we get to a phone call. We didn't hear a whole lot about the cost of education. We did hear some about it. Is there any else that was missing last night, Colin, that you really wanted to hear these candidates talk about? Uh, I think I'll pass on that. I, I don't I don't have a, a, a automatic answer to that. I, how about you, Kalila? Well, I think they hit all of the high points. I think that there were issues that they could have spent more time on. I could have probably done without the segment about, well, did you smoke marijuana? And if so, how would you feel about legalization? I think it's my it, favorite part. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining Jim Webb getting high, and that was a Ooh, little scary. Well, they they never got uh, to no his question. No right. like There's bias because yeah. he's from Virginia, and I yeah. say that as a Virginian. But even the issue of higher education and of hearing Bernie Sanders say, I want to make public education free for colleges, and Hillary Clinton saying, well, I want more kids to do work study, I kept asking how. How is this going to work? That's where the focus could have been. Bill, anything yeah. missing? Yeah, overwhelmingly, uh, and I know I'm a little monochromatic on this, uh, but uh, the issue of public corruption, how the government works, uh, I've, I've said this over and over, but the Democratic Party has to come to terms with the fact that people agree with the Democratic positions on almost every issue in debate, from from gay marriage to immigration to gun safety uh, to the tax code and the Cuban embargo, you name it. If we've been debating it, 60 percent to two-thirds of the American people are, are on the Democratic side. And the Republicans control the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the presidential election is a dead heat. Why is that? The answer, I believe, is that the government has become odious even in the eyes of patriots. It is people have never felt this depth of anger and despair over the condition of the democracy. And that means that we that, that if you want to be the party of government and get people to vote for you, you have to prove you're ready to fix it. So more about revolving door and whistleblowers and transparency and how you're going to clean this thing up. How if if the Democrats won't fix it, they'll let the Republicans kill it. Actually, I thought that highlighted 
Um, an interesting distinction between Sanders and Clinton last night came with the Ed- Edward Snowden question, where, yes. where she gave a, an implausible answer that he could have sought some kind of protected whistleblower Everybody's status. Everybody's so afraid of it. Everything she said was wrong. Yeah. It was untrue. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That. I, 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 that was my reaction to it. This is basically an untrue answer. Whereas Sanders said, look, he committed a crime, but the, the service to the American people right. in terms of knowing about some of the yeah. stuff that you're talking yeah. about, Bill, Which is was what the huge. law says, yeah. by the way. It's, it's just, all you're saying is that he should have benefit of, the due, of due process under law. Yeah, uh, I, I it's thought a, it, it's a simple point to make. I thought that was Sanders driving some of the points that you just talked about forward in a way that nobody else wanted to. We, we, we had a little back and forth. It was funny, Kalila, on Twitter last night. You and I were up late doing uh, doing the Twitter thing, and, and I think you and and I and a lot of people were laughing about the notion that we we're going to go to to Don Lemon for his first question, and uh-huh. he's going to ask the Black Lives Matter question, which uh, again, it actually. It was not handled terribly well by any of the candidates, but the entire thing wasn't handled well by CNN or, or any piece of it. Just kind of a little ugly piece of last night's debate, I thought. I would say CNN did a horrible job when it came to mm-hmm. asking those questions. So we're going to the Latino journalist to ask about immigration. We're going to the woman to ask about equal pay and about uh, the benefits that women have. And I kept thinking, well, who's going to be the person that asked the question about marriage equality? Are they then trying to essentialize in that way? It was an awkward, clumsy approach that I think really took away from the importance. Whoever thought that in a presidential debate you would have a question about Black Lives Matter being asked in a formidable way, but then to kick it to Don Lemon, it just totally lost But it wasn't asked in a formidable way. It was asked, do Black Lives Matter or, or do, do all, all lives, lives matter? matter? And it was, right. it was one of right. the – I couldn't about, believe they did that. It, it was, it was the, the <laughs> issue that <laughs> it even was raised to me yeah. was what made it a surprise. But I think it was – The clumsy it was, yeah. way it was handled yeah. and the very naive way that it was handled is the very same critiques that those activists who jumped on stage with Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders mentioned. Look, this is not just a slogan. This is not just a political tool to be used. It is really about how people are living and dying in this country. And to some degree, all the Democrats do what Hillary does, which is just name check the issue. And it's not enough to name check Black Lives Matter or any of the issues that came up last night. Every one of them, you, if, if, name checking is OK with your base. But they have to be explained to the larger public. And that's what a political leader does, build constituencies behind ideas. And, and showing that you have the ability to bring the country along to show why there's a deeper value here that brings us together rather than drives us apart. Um, yeah, and I thought Sanders did – I mean he's had a problem with that in the past you know, with, with this whole question. I thought his answer was better last night. He yeah. mentioned Sandra Bland. He said this is the difference. That's right. You get in your car. It's an ordinary day mm-hmm. and then suddenly it's not. One, one thing that I will say is that um, as opposed to CNN, which you know, in this very clumsy way seemed to try to associate questions with the actual identity of the questioners, you know, on stage – it is kind of interesting that the Republicans have this cheesecake factory mem- uh, menu where you can sort of order anything. You know, they got Latinos, they got women, they got a black candidate, they got. And you know, I mean, it really was as somebody uh, observed last night: five candidates, average age sixty-five, all white, one woman. This wasn't. It's not a very diverse field. Maybe that doesn't matter, uh, but it really was kind of a restaurant with only two things on the menu. I, I just want to quickly get to Ted Madison. Hi, Ted. Go ahead. Hi. Um- I'm directing this to everyone, but I'd like to hear Bill's uh, opinion particularly. Um, You know, listening to Hillary last night with her comment about being a progressive who gets things done, um, and I'm a very left Democrat, but my biggest issue with her is I feel like she tacks wherever uh, public opinion takes her, 
And I, I don't get a real sense that if she were elected, she's going to do anything more than than what uh, you know Wall Street and her husband's friends tell her to do. And I'd I'd kind of like to know what the panel thinks she can hang her hat on that she's done that's indicative of where she would go as president rather than just having an agenda driven by what. Well, hey, Ted, thank you very much, because I want to quickly get to this. We just have a few minutes before our break. First of all, first of all, for me, this isn't a question of character. And in the years in which I've known her, uh, I was privileged to know her. I think that she's an honest, decent, good hearted person. And uh, my problem is what she believes about these things. She thinks pay-to-play politics is the only way to win an election. She still thinks globalization is working. I don't know from anything that she said that she really understands what's wrong with the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, which is the seeding of, 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 of the prerogatives of democracy to the corporate sector. And so there's a whole question, again, again that, that big message of what's really gone wrong here and what the democracy really needs to, to address – I don't think she gets it. I think that she's very still, still very much caught up in that system. The second thing I'll just say is that you know, people said that you can't do what Bernie wants to do because it's too uh, extreme. And one, our position – our view of what's extreme changes very rapidly in this country, gay marriage and, uh, and, and many other things, uh, uh, raises for low-wage workers. Uh, you can have breakthroughs. Uh, uh, you know, and, and number two, given this current situation – you can't do the little things either. You can't do anything. And he should have said, by the way, if we don't win both houses, you're right. I can't do anything and neither can she. So I, I think that's the point in terms of what has actually been done. And that's the articulation piece that comes into play. You need to say in a concrete manner, here's what I've done. This is how it's helped. Instead of just saying, well, I've helped children and families. Tell voters how you've done that. Then they can see you as distinct from your husband, distinct from the sort of paternalistic view of she only did what he wanted to do or what his friends wanted to do. She has a record. She has to articulate that. Colin? One of my big questions about last night is what's the effect of Bernie Sanders' gravitational pull on her? So that caller summed up a problem that people have with Hillary Clinton. And that problem could be made worse by having a guy like Bernie Sanders up there who's not like that, who's essentially saying what he feels. Um, You know, she wouldn't have as big a problem uh, in that way last night if Bernie Sanders weren't up there, you know, in in his very unfiltered way. As I think Bill wrote in his column, though, one thing that was clear clear is as the Democrats get together and they have the type of the debate they had last night, it does differentiate that debate from the debates that the Republicans have been having in a lot of different ways and maybe sets up some interesting general election debates as well. We may talk about this a little bit more when we come back. There's more news in the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable to talk about. First, I'm going to turn it over to some colleagues who are going to tell you how you can support all this good stuff here on WNPR. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, ta Coates is one of the most important voices in America today. He made the case for reparations last summer when he argued that it's time for America to confront the impact of not just decades but hundreds of years of slavery. So we talked to him earlier this year when he was in Hartford. This is before he released his powerful new book and before he won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Join us for this conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Today in the program, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined, as always, by Colin McEnroe, who hosts the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Instead of really late writing a column for Salon.com last night, Bill Curry, who also writes a weekly column for Salon.com. He's our Democratic political analyst. And Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. We've been breaking down 
down the debate from last night. Little piece of uh, connective tissue, I suppose, Colin. Uh, Bill Clinton coming to UConn this week. He's going to get an award at the Dodd Center. He's going to do a big fundraiser at the home of Attorney General George Jepson. What's what's the Bill Clinton impact uh, on this race, do you think? Well, you and I were talking about that uh, during our breaks and uh, during the pledge drive this morning. Um, For me, there's sort of two things that Bill Clinton can do. I mean, he can marginally increase the impact of fundraisers like the one he's going to do here in Connecticut, right? I mean, there's he's going to go into Jepson's house and he's going to they're going to walk out with more money than they would get from anybody else they could put in George Jepson's house. I don't know. I'm not a plugged in enough to fundraising to know how much that is, how big the margin is. But it is a margin. I mean, he just can make it rain. Uh, and and that's great for, from their point of view. The other thing that he can do, and I think it's less necessary now than it will be later, is there there is no living politician who can distill something complex into something simple. Uh, and so as Hillary Clinton's campaign gets more complicated, the issues get more complicated, the things that need to be explained get harder to explain, he's, he's probably going to be valuable in that way. I've seen, him, I've seen him come in even on behalf of Dan Malloy and give a better explanation uh, of something that Dan Malloy needed to explain than Dan Malloy had been able to do on his own behalf. And that, that was based on the notes that he took on a little ragged scrap of paper on the car from Windsor Locks down to the Hartford <laughs> Fund. I mean, in that amount of time, Bill and figured out how to explain something that Dan Beloy had been trying to explain for months and months. He's really that good at that level. But, you know, you asked an interesting question, which is, does, does each election cycle weaken his popularity? Do you have more and more young people coming into the voter market who don't have any real strong connection to the Clinton good times, maybe remember Monica Lewinsky and not much else? I mean, is he the kind of, you know, august figure that, uh, that he used to be? And I don't know the answer to that, but you're right. I think he, there's, there's are going to be diminishing returns from him as time goes by. I think the point I was trying to make, Kalila, is for the many young Republicans who might follow a Ted Cruz who worship at the altar of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a person, but it was an idea, an idea that even an 18-year-old can, if you were so inclined, explain. The idea of Bill Clinton, I think, is embodied by Bill Clinton. It's not so much a series of policies. It's about a guy who's really good at doing this thing and is charming and charismatic. And so I guess I just wonder, as he gets older and further away from being president, is there any impact of him, say, coming on a college campus and getting people fired up? Right. So I think Ronald Reagan definitely represents an idea and a notion, even if people misunderstand what that idea actually was. So the Ronald Reagan that many young Republicans revere, once they listen to his speeches and look at his writings, wait a minute, that's not quite what I remember. But I also think there's a big difference between voters and donors. So the returns are definitely diminishing for Bill Clinton's appeal to college students. I think he gets that. But those people who write the big checks, those people who get the invitations to the private homes and private events still see him within that record. It's interesting given all of Hillary Clinton's comments last night about mass incarceration, about our our need to address disparities. Many of those disparities were ushered in during his administration. So how he will address that, how he will reshape how voters and donors of that time remember his era will be important. And things like gay marriage and everything else, Bill, these are some of the things that now as you look back at the Clinton years, many young voters, people who are getting involved in politics right now say, oh, that's that's what the Clintons did. You know, I, I, to some degree, I, Colin used the word august, and 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 That's he was, wrong word. He, yeah, yeah, he was never that. He always wore his power lightly. He humanizes uh, his wife, and and almost any room he's in. 
Uh, you know, he could turn a stadium into a living room in seconds. It was just extraordinary. The guy could talk a dog off a meat wagon. And, and, and so he still has all of that. He, he may not have as much. By the way, it's scandals that recede in memory. It's the Lewinsky stuff that grows dimmer, not the administration. But the challenge is still to remind people of the Clinton administration rather than the Clinton White House. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's Hillary's challenge and that's his challenge. And he's a mixed bag on that. There are two things people talk about him besides that. But he's good on the campaign trail. And in terms of reaching the young, he's better than anybody else in politics. Okay, he's, he's number one. But, 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 but I would say two things. One, in terms of political advice, I think he's a little rusty. He's as smart a person as I ever had the privilege of working with. It's breathtaking. Uh, his mind, it was like watching somebody do parlor tricks. He, he, he could think so fast. I don't think he's I, – I, I think his problem is the same as Hillary's. He's been too long in the bubble, bubble of privilege and power to be quite the natural instinctive populist that he once was. And the second thing is as, – uh, so he's advisor and explainer. The second thing is explanation. He'll still be very good at explaining why a program will work and he'll be very good at explaining the difference between Democrats and Republicans. What he won't be quite as good at is explaining why the program will ultimately solve the problem because the ideology they're caught in won't. One quick observation I would make is – or a question that I have. So we've seen now with the Republican field this group of politicians who are young, who are presidential aspirants, who are on the national stage. And we know that the Democrats don't have that kind of bench. I'm back to my point about I think the average age on stage last night was about 65. Um, So one of the questions is – I mean, and we know that this young sort of Marco Rubio generation of Republican politicians, you know, they they are inspired by the Reagan legacy. They got – they came of age. They got turned on during the time of Reagan. And the question is, will Bill Clinton ultimately result in that kind? In other words, you know, you think about the Castro brothers and maybe even Chris Murphy might be an example of that. People who maybe got excited about politics as young people uh, coming of age during the Clinton era when this was really something that people could believe in and get excited about. Is that group, is that cohort coming along? Because if it's not coming along pretty soon, the Democrats have a whole other problem. You mentioned earlier this trip to Connecticut that Governor Malloy or that uh, Bill Clinton made on behalf of Governor Malloy, explaining some of Governor Malloy's positions in a way that indeed humanized him and got the point out. This is something, a Bill Clinton visit is something that uh, the governor might want this morning. A new Quinnipiac University (laughs) poll uh, released this morning has nothing but bad news. Uh, It says uh, at the headline, Malloy hits rock bottom in Connecticut. I'm going to read from the top line. Connecticut voters disapprove 58 to 32 percent of the governor, uh, the job Governor Malloy is doing, his lowest approval rating ever, and the lowest score for any governor in the nine states surveyed this year by the independent Quinnipiac University poll. The governor gets a four to one negative score for the way he's handling taxes and the state budget. He's not running for anything right now, Colin, but this poll just coming out right now. What does this mean? Well, I mean, I think we've all assumed for a long time that he's not going to run for governor again. I mean, even before we saw numbers like this, this would tend to drive that point home. And, you know, I haven't had a, t- a lot of time to drill deeper into the crosstabs, but some of them are what really alarming in terms of his lack of support among Democrats. Um, as you get down into specific issues like taxes and budget and stuff like that, you have uh, a greater than majority number. I think on one of those indices, 61 percent of Democrats disapprove of the job that he's doing. So, yes, I mean, when you're a governor just you know getting kind of nostalgic and misty-eyed for the days when your approval rating was way up at 43, um, you've got a real problem. And another thing about 
Dan Malloy, one thing that makes him different from almost any other governor, comparable governor uh, that you can think of, is he's never had the 70, all right? I mean, Bill, uh, Chris Christie, Andrew Cuomo, I mean, no matter how low their numbers go, you can look back to a time when their approval rating was 65, was 70. Malloy's never, he's always been a porcupine. You know, he's just, he's never had that kind of a number. So, and I think the question then is, what's next? You know, not just for the people of Connecticut, but is this a national profile? Is this part of a, a bigger problem? And if you look at the base, you look at the groups of voters who are most likely to support him, they are the ones who are saying these new economic policies, these planned cuts, you know, reopening contract negotiations, trying to change higher education, those policies are going to affect his base the most. And so if you lose that base, what is left for you to really govern on? You know, I, a couple of things. First of all, that the key to both of Malloy's victories was Tom Foley. And if Tom's done, so's Dan. Uh, and it, the, the, he's the one guy that he could have beaten and uh, and did twice. Uh, and so that you know, talk about the luck of the draw. And uh, and the second thing is the kind of person he is and the kind of political leader he is. He's paid a huge price for not doing what he ran on. Uh, opening up government, higher ethics, property tax reform, opening the state employee health care plan, putting an end to econ- corporate economic development policies. You could take almost that entire platform and and he's actually against most of it in office and I think he's paid a huge price for that. He's in the absolute in, uh, corporate wing of the party and I would just you know, f- finish by saying that there's uh, – that there's – uh, the corporate education programs, which cost Bill Finch his job in 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 in, in Bridgeport, uh, the corporate economic development, the sort of corporate bribery economic development model, which is not working here and it does shouldn't work anywhere, and now he's about to go off to the Democratic Governors Association, which is a PAC, it's a super PAC, and he's going to spend the next couple of years raising money from corporate interests, and that's never two words, John Rowland, that never helps anyone do their job better or relate to the public better. So this problem that he has is about to get bigger. And it gets to the point you're saying in some of the crosstabs they're calling, you know, if a whole lot of Democrats are saying that they don't love the job that Governor Malloy is doing, maybe that's because there's small little groups of Democrats, whether it's teachers or union members or others who've uh, people in you know public service industries who felt slighted by uh, some of the the things that he's done in the last couple of years, and now that's coming back in in a way to bite him. And the other thing that this this poll exists in the same climate as last night's debate, at least to the extent that it ex- exists in a climate of very dissatisfied people. I mean, people are always kind of dissatisfied, uh, but you know, in, in the same sense that Bernie Sanders is speaking directly past the media, past the political establishment, to a lot of angry people in America. You know, I, I thought one of the um, interesting uh, tabs here was. Uh, uh, would you say that you are better or better off or worse off financially than you were a year ago? Forty-four um, percent of people said they were worse off, uh, and that's forty-eight percent of independents, fifty-six percent of Republicans, twenty-nine percent of Democrats. So that's sort of a political answer, but it's also—I mean, that, we're talking about a year. You know, people. A lot of people think they're a wor- they're claiming anyway they're worse off than they were a year ago. That's a sign of a very discontented Republican. But, but it's also it's not entirely certainly Governor Malloy's fault that Connecticut has had this very slow recovery from the recession and much slower than a lot of other places. Kalila, this is what a lot of people are feeling though when they answer a question like that. Right, and so they're thinking about their sort of national standing and not necessarily making the distinction between what's going on at, at the federal or national level that may shape what happens. 
happens here at home. But the reality is simply if the perception is that people feel that they're doing worse off, it doesn't matter. If they're blaming Malloy, it doesn't matter if they're saying it's part of a holdover from a prior administration or prior national uh, issues. This is the reality for many people in Connecticut. What are we going to do to address it? I, I want to get to one last thing. It actually comes into this idea of the state of permanent fiscal crisis that we've talked about early or often on the program uh, that Ben Barnes coined. This is from our friend John Lender at the Hartford Current. A mid-budget crisis, 17 go to legislative conferences on $28,205 taxpayers tab. Essentially, John Lender, uh, Colin, looked into how some of our state legislators are spending money to travel a bit and see the world, and it's it's coming on our dime. Right. So, I mean, during the era of Jody Rowell, there was this, this kind of, you know, anti-travel. Um, you weren't even allowed to go to the International House of Pancakes. Um, you know, like, <laughs> don't go anywhere. <laughs> don't have anything to do. So, um, so you know, and, and that's ridiculous, too. I mean, there is some value in all this. But I think you, during a time like this, you don't want any sense that legislators are living lavish lifestyles while they're doing that. There was some indication looking at some of the fine print of those expense reports that people were. And I will just say my, my own little personal uh, angry moment about this is that uh, if you're going to go someplace that has a mass transit system and you're a legislator who votes on mass transit questions, use the mass transit system. Don't take taxis. Go find out how people get around in Seattle or wherever it is that you are because, in fact, we are so ignorant and backwards and recalcitrant in this state about mass transit that it behooves anybody who's traveling on behalf of the people of Connecticut to figure out how it works, where it can work and does work. Uh, Bill, very quickly on this. I mean, do we make too much of when we see numbers like this, uh, lawmakers traveling on, on, on our dime to go to conferences, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I, I think a little too much. And I actually – anything these people can do to be, become more knowledgeable than they are – uh, uh, has a presumption, uh, of, a favorable presumption on, on, on my part. I agree with Colin's point, though. Uh, you, you, you're here in, when you're supposed to be passing austerity budgets, and when most of us are living under austerity budgets in our own lives, it's good to live austerely when on the road. <laughs> Bill Curry is a columnist at Salon.com. He's our Democratic political analyst. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, it. as always. Thanks, as always, to Kalila Brandine, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Thank you, Dr. Brandine. Thank you, John. And thank you to Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thanks, Colin. Oh. Yeah, it was a long morning because we've been we've been asking for we've been asking for money from you, and we're going to continue to do that because we need to raise money to pay for this great programming. Here's some folks to tell you how. Thanks for listening to the Wheelhouse on where we live. <laughs>